Nothing. Nothing but. Nothing but net. Net, net, net. Welcome to Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. Before we get into the meat of today's show, let's recap on why there's so much interest and buzz around net, net, net properties. Triple net properties are commercial real estate investments where the tenants, usually brand name corporations, pay you rent every month. Can you say mailbox money? In addition, they pay the real estate taxes, insurance, and maintenance for the property. No toilets, termites, or taxes. What's not to like? You can remember what net, 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 or triple net stands for by using TIM, Taxes, Insurance, and Maintenance. With triple net properties, there's lower risk income and cash flow because rents are guaranteed by strong credit tenants. Preservation of wealth because rent increases and property appreciation are bulwarks against inflation and a great store of value. Tax efficiency. The government wants investment in commercial real estate, so they provide inducements through depreciation and deductions which shelter income from taxation. Tax deferral, which gives potential for infinite tax deferral with 1031 exchanges, which are very popular in the triple net space. Triple net properties are a tangible asset, and as Mark Twain once said, buy land, they ain't making any more of it. Welcome back to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, joined by our co-host, Michael Flight. Hey, Adam, how's it going? Good, good to have you here, Michael. Excited because today we're going to be getting into a very important part of the, the process in triple net leasing, and that is making the offer, uh, the letter of intent. So, you know, if the location, the tenant credit, the brand, all of that meet our investment criteria and the financial analysis meets our returns or cash flow expectations, then as you've kind of communicated to me, that means that we're ready to make an offer. So in this chapter, we're going to discuss making that offer, which is typically in the form of a non-binding proposal, most commonly called a letter of intent, abbreviated LOI. And Michael, I remember, uh, you know, when, when I first started working with you, what, maybe two years ago, this was still kind of like Chinese to me. And now it's, it's interesting that I can say LOI <laughs> and know exactly what I'm talking about. It's uh, pretty much like every um, business or uh, specialty. There's all the little buzzwords that uh, you need to know for doing specific things. And as you get more specific and more specific in, you know, more, um, specialized, you get all these little buzzwords. But um, LOI, it stands for letter of intent. They're also called proposals, or some people call them purchase offers. So when somebody's talking about that, they're talking about most of the time a, a letter of intent. Gotcha. And uh, you said purchase offers. I know there's what comes after the LOI, the letter of intent, and we're not going to get into this today. But the next step is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's called the purchase sale agreement. Yes. And um, so when somebody says, let's do a PSA, what they basically mean is let's make a contract to purchase the property. And so we're going to get into that on our next episode. But in this one, it's a little bit of an introduction. So you, you basically with the letter of intent, you get the terms agreed to uh, so that both parties don't go spend a lot of money on all the legal uh, putting together a contract and negotiating those specifics. Because 
most of the stuff is not agreeable in the letter of intent, then uh, it's not worth taking the time to draw a contract. Uh, I have met some people that believe that when they make an offer, they they fill out a contract, you know, or they have their their set purchase and sale agreement, and they send that in. For the most part, though, you're mostly dealing with either institutional sellers or you're dealing with brokers. They don't mind, and they're very comfortable negotiating an LOI because you get all the terms done, and then once it goes into the LOI, then you just transfer those terms into the contract. It's one extra step, but you know, for the most part, I believe comes to a better meeting of the mind. So, gotcha. and uh, you've also you know, communicated to me, professional investors tend to have different opinions and offer style. Some will make, you know, hundreds of lowball offers in hopes of getting one, despite the seller uh, being able to bite. I mean, tell us a little bit about what you've seen in the marketplace and what worked, what's worked best for us. Yeah. And I did forget one thing and I want to caution people on a letter of intent. Letters of intent are typically non-binding and there'll be, you know, wording in there that says that this is a non-binding offer, but it's just to negotiate the terms. But you should always check your um, local state and municipal laws because in some jurisdictions they have been held to, to be binding. So I can remember when I was but a wee lad and working for a, a larger company, uh, somebody had made in our company, somebody had done a uh, letter of intent for a lease. And in the state of Michigan, at that point in time, I'm, I'm not familiar with what it is now. The LOI, since it was signed by both parties, was said to be the lease. And so that particular ownership group that uh, we I was working for ended up having to actually do the lease with that tenant. And the LOI ended up being seen as a lease because they didn't have the exculpatory language in there that says, um, this is a non-binding offer. More specifically, like I said, you should always, 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 you know, before you do something, just check with the state and local laws. And um, as we've said a number of times, you should also um, have an attorney that you work with regularly. But now going back to what you're talking about, offers of uh, style and offer style, I, I've seen people that uh, have been successful making you know, hundreds, if not thousands of lowball offers. And so what they basically do is, is volume and they keep making these, these lowball offers. And if somebody's desperate, they will accept the offer. You and I both know one organization that does this and, and it's part of their business model and they've been successful at it. Uh, but for the most part, if you intend to be in the market for a long time and you want to get access to, to better deals or even have your offer taken seriously, because in certain situations, you're not going to be the only one offering on the property. And in competitive property markets like we had last year and in some of the um, properties that, that we're you know, making offers on now, there's some of the, the better tenants out there. The tenants have continued to pay rent through covid and so there's a lot of demand for those properties. There's not a lot of demand for other properties. Like for example, through the COVID crisis, before COVID, gyms were, were very popular. You had uh, like LA Fitness and you know some larger fitness tenants that were corporately guaranteed uh, that were single tenant net lease deals. And uh, those were highly desirable because a lot of the um, retail was migrating online. And so it's like, oh, well, you can't replace a gym because people have to go to the gym. Well, as it turns out, 
if you have a pandemic and people are scared to go to the gym and uh, the actual you know, government shut down gyms and, and don't allow them to open or in certain cases sit down restaurants, then, then you've got some problems. So where was I going with this? So you want to make sure that um, your offer is strategic and that in popular areas where, where things are very popular, you might be competing against uh, three to five different bidders. So for example, earlier in the year, we had a property that we, were, we made an offer on there was five, uh, actually up to seven bidders. Um, we made the cut, the first cut, which cut it down to, to four bidders. And then they interviewed us and said, um, you know, where are you getting your money from? It was a situation where there was a, a value add component to it. So they wanted to make sure that, you know, we knew what we were doing because if we knew what we were doing in that particular property and with that particular property type, like we do with triple net deals, the bank is is a lot more likely to, to lend us money. It's a lot more likely if you've got the cash to close that you're going to be the guy to close. So in that particular scenario, we were not the highest bidder, but we were the most capable of closing. And so they accepted our LOI and then we went on to do a, uh, a purchase and sale agreement and you know move on from there. Yeah, I do remember that. And so similar to what you just said, if the seller gets multiple offers, how do you make yourself stand out in that situation? Well, number one, we put together a professional LOI. So try and hit on most of the uh, main points in the LOI that are just going to slide into the purchase and sale agreement. And we try to be very detailed about what type of information we're going to need. We also show them that we did a little bit of homework before we just made the offer. And we try not to be legally obnoxious so that if they see this LOI that actually looks like a contract, has all these different things in there that's going to bind the uh, property owner up, a lot of times they'll just say, this is going to be more hassle than it's worth. Let's go to these other guys that are a little simpler. The other thing we like to do is if there's a broker involved, we like to have a relationship with the selling broker. And we do have you know, relationships with most of the major brokers out there so that they know who we are and we have a little bit of a reputation. You could actually have a buyer's broker who performs that role for you. They know most of these brokers and so they can kind of vouch for you. Or a hot pro tip, even if the broker knows you, it's always helpful for them that you put together some information on yourself, you put together some information on your company, put together some information. You know, maybe you've got a track record. If you don't have a track record, uh, maybe you've got banking relationships or you've been in, you know, let's say that the restaurant business before and you're buying a restaurant, that type of thing, so that they can see that you're serious about closing, that you've done a little bit of homework and that you're putting together a professional presentation so that it makes them feel better about choosing you. Again, these are things that, these little things that have actually gotten us chosen, even though we are not the highest bidder. Nice. Very good to know. Very and valuable. not the highest bidder. <laughs> I see that. Really good to know. Thank you. So next steps, at what point do you recommend visiting the property? Do you do it before the LOI? As we went through in detail on um, checking out the location, you can get a, a lot of information just by Googling it and everything else. So I would recommend, and uh, this is a term I heard from an old pro in the uh, real estate industry, especially with net lease properties, because you pretty much know who the tenant is and what you're getting. Uh, he told me LOI before you fly. 
I like it. But th- there's in, in certain situations, the broker will not accept or the, the owner will not accept an offer unless you've actually visited the property. So one of the things when we are you know, saying we're going to make an offer on this property, how do you feel? Because we haven't visited the property, but we've done all our homework. Most of the time they'll say, you know, just send the LOI in and we'll see. Because they know that if you've got to get on a plane and fly, it it is a hassle and it is expense. Uh, but there's other on the other side of the negotiating table. If you are selling your property, if you've got a bunch of uh, bids, you might want to make the people put some more investment into it of time and effort and uh, actual money. Uh, because they'll be more likely to give you some concessions uh, a little bit later on because they're heavily invested in the deal. Right. I think you could even compare that to other forms of real estate. I mean, down to something as basic as, as buying a home. If someone's getting ready to purchase a house as a seller, for the most part, I think, you know, whoever's going to be buying your home from you, you're going to want them to at least come and, and check it out and see the property a little bit before they decide they want to move forward with it. Right. But the great thing about net lease properties is if you've got a good broker package and you've done your homework, going down to visit the property is kind of a formality. You should know most of what's involved with the property before you go down and see it. So it is something that you can do nationally. If you're familiar with other countries, you could do it internationally. The the net lease is primarily on, is it a good location? And then um, is it a good tenant? and how long the lease is and what the financial stuff is. It is one of the few things in real estate where it's um, very similar to a bond that you're buying primarily on location and credit. You know, if those check out, you don't have to actually, and, and then you go and physically visit the property. So that's, it's a little bit different. Um, and it, it's kind of unique in, in the real estate business. So yeah, more of a formality. Good to know. Let's go go through some of the basic letter of intent format structure. As always on this podcast, this is not a substitute for legal advice. Michael and I are not attorneys, nor should you use this for any specific deal unless you consult an attorney and any real estate broker representing you for law specific to the locality of where the property is located. But yes, we're about to do this. We're going to go through each section line by line of a letter of intent. And just so you guys know, this will also be available in the Nothing But Net book coming soon. You can get a pre-sale copy of the Nothing But Net book authored by Michael Fight at nothingbutnetbook.com. Thank you very much for that. So um, we're you know, busy working on the book. We're hoping that it's going to come out soon. What we're probably going to do is at least for the first 25, maybe the first 50, we're, we're still trying to figure that out. But we are going to give the book away free to our um, our listeners. So we're going to arrange that on, on that website. That, uh, But in the meantime, just go and um, give us your email and your contact information and uh, we'll put you on the list. And as they come in, uh, we will, once they're gone, they're gone. We do want to add as much value as possible to people's lives. So that's why we we believe that we'd like to give that out as well as giving out this information free on on the podcast. Talking about the um, letter of intent, you would probably want to have the LOI on your letterhead, which gives the impression that you are a serious buyer. If nothing else, and this is basic stuff, you will want your name, uh, your company, your address, and phone number at the top. And I usually make sure that there's an email address typically at the bottom below my signature because most of this stuff now is all done electronically. So that's, that's it. As always, once you get the 
the top part done so they, they can see who you are. The offer should always be dated, um, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. We also recommend that you have a uh, expiration date so that the offer is not hanging out for a year because what, what you, you want to create a sense of urgency again that this offer is going to expire. And the other thing is you don't want to waste your time waiting around for someone to give an offer because that ties up your time. You want to make sure that it's either going to be accepted or not accepted. And if it's not accepted, you just move on to the next one. And you also don't want them to come back, you know, in a month, a year, uh, two years and say, oh, um, by the way, we'd like to take you up on the offer. I mean, because the the market could have changed. So you do want time is of the essence type of a thing. You're going to want the name, the company. If you're working with a broker, you're going to want to name the broker in there. It's just, you know, the the right thing to do. I know a lot of people don't like working with brokers, but uh, if there is a broker representing the owner, they should probably be named in there because that's who you're going to be, you know, sending it to. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're going to also want whoever you're sending it to, their email address in there so that once this information is going into a PSA, your attorney and everybody else involved with your team is going to know, you know, who the communication, you know, and where, where it goes. The other times uh, you'll, uh, the offer will be an owner of record. Even if you know who the owner is, uh, it might be a REIT or a person that owns the property. They will typically own the property in a single asset entity. This is another buzzword you'll see, another buzz acronym. It's abbreviated SAE. So when you see the term SAE or single asset entity, or it'll sometimes be called a, a single purpose entity or SPE, Um, They're typically a a limited liability company. Only this one property is held within that limited liability company. So even on these larger institutional investors, in order to mitigate their risk, they hold almost every property they own in its own special single asset LLC. All right. And so once we get all of uh, what you just mentioned, out of the way, we're heading to the subject line. And for all of our non-vegan listeners out there, why don't we get into the meat of what's next? (laughs) You had to throw that in there, huh? (laughs) The subject line would typically be your, you would name the property. So if you're buying a McDonald's in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, you'd say McDonald's, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then you'd also put the address and the city and the state. So it, tells people that this is the, the specific asset that you're buying. We, like I say, usually name it by the tenant name and then the specific address. So McDonald's, Walgreens, Dollar Tree, Amazon, anything like that. In terms of etiquette, we usually use the deer and then Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, or Ms. So-and-so. It, it's, that's all your style. If you want to be you know, casual, you don't need the deer and you could just say, Hey, Adam. So we go through and say, we're pleased to present this offer from, and we name who we are. So in our case, it would be Liberty Real Estate Fund LLC in the following intent to purchase. We also want to make sure that we have in there, it's Liberty Fund LLC or nominee. And we definitely want to make sure that's in the purchase and sale agreement, which we'll talk about later. Because as we said before, this is probably going to go into a single purpose LLC uh, company. And so then we want to make sure that it's the correct address. And what we typically do, or it'll be on the, um, 
on the offering memorandum, but if it's not, we look up the assessor parcel number. That is abbreviated as APN. It's also sometimes just known as a PIN in certain jurisdictions, but and that's the property index number. And then we just go on to say if the general provisions are acceptable, blah, 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 blah. This is where we put the time uh, limit on there. So we put in our things. It, it depends on how complex the deal is, but more than likely we'll say within seven date of the, this agreement is alive for seven days and we've got seven days or seven business days to put together the, um, the entire LOI. The main thing that we're going to hit them with number one is the purchase price because that's what they're going to want to see. And then they're going to want to see if there's any terms and, and conditions most of the time there is a, and it's a much shorter window for a single tenant asset for a, a due diligence period. In the case of when we were doing shopping centers, we might ask for a 60 day due diligence period because it's going through a lot of leases and everything like that. There's a lot less due diligence on a single tenant property. So the main thing is you're going to want to see the lease in, in some of those other things. And we'll go into that in the PSA and due diligence section in one of the later episodes. So you're going to want to see all the documents. What we will typically say is all the documents in the seller's possession. Some people will push back on that because there might be a lot of documents and they don't want to send that. We typically ask for a 30-day due diligence period. There's other companies out there and we've been in competitive situations where that's been as little as 20 days or 15 days. If you want to be really aggressive and you really want the property and you think you can swing it, then uh, you just say 15 days to close. Just one caveat with that, you better have all cash or you better have um, you know, a bank that's willing to, to lend you, but I've never seen a bank do something that fast. So mm-hmm. some of the things you're gonna wanna say up front here is uh, we're gonna wanna, if you've got a, a phase one in your possession, we'd like to see that. We're also gonna do a phase one environmental inspection because at some point later on, we're probably going to have to finance it and you can't get financing on a property, especially if it's a federally insured bank uh, without a phase one. You don't want to take possession of a property without doing any type of environmental report because the just the key thing to remember with these triple net deals is a lot of them are on corners and we know from past experience that Gas stations also used to like to be on corners. So if there was a gas station that happened to leak underneath there, even if it's right now a, um, a restaurant or if it's you know some other use, it could have been a gas station back in the 1950s. And if that's the case and you've got a, like a, you've struck oil underneath your property, um, you wanna know that you're gonna wanna avoid that unless they have you know the proper things that say, it's not an issue anymore and, and it's signed off. You've got to take your precautions there. You're also going to want to look at the leases, any amendments to the leases, because every once in a while, certain situations come up and the tenant and the landlord agree to the amendment. You want to make sure that there's no side letter agreements to the lease. So in some situations we've seen, and it's typically with um, smaller local tenants, there's the, the tenant wasn't paying their rent. So there's a side letter agreement that says they don't have to pay their rent because they were having financial problems. So even though the lease says one thing, there's the side letter agreement that both parties sign that say, since they were having financial problems, they can pay a lesser agreement. So that's why we always upfront ask for a, an estoppel agreement. Even if you're, most banks are going to want to see a, an estoppel agreement. 
but an estoppel agreement is something signed by the tenant, or I'm sorry, it's a estoppel certificate. The tenant signs it and says, yes, these are the terms of the lease. And we're agreeing that these are the terms of the lease. And the other thing is, this is what we're paying currently. So that is extremely important because if the tenant doesn't sign that estoppel agreement, it could be a big clue that they're not paying the correct rent or you know, there's something uh, like we just talked about these side agreements. You're also gonna wanna ask, you know, if it's a private company, you're gonna wanna see if you can get financial statements for the tenant. And if it's a retailer or some sort of service business, you're gonna wanna see if um, they can give you sales reports because that's gonna tell you whether they're doing well at the location or not doing well at the location. And then you're gonna wanna see any of the seller's operating expenses. You're also gonna wanna verify the, the real estate tax bills and that the tenant has been paying the real estate tax bills because if the tenant did not pay the real estate tax bills at closing, you could be liable for paying the real estate taxes because the real estate taxes are, are priority. And then you know, this is going to be detailed more in the um, purchase and sale agreement, but you're going to want a satisfactory title review. And um, if it is in a, a shopping center or anywhere else, but especially in a shopping center, there's going to be a reciprocal easement agreement, which means that this tenant and people going in to visit this tenant have the right to use the entrances and the exits and you know drive across the parking lot. You're going to want a, a satisfactory survey. You're also going to want to have time. This is where you go down. Once they agree to this LOI and you start negotiating the purchase and sale agreement, or even if you get the purchase and sale agreement done better yet, you're going to want to go and um, you know physically inspect the property to see what it is. You're going to ask them. In some cases, they do have it because they were the builder of the property. So you say, do you have any plans? Plans are always good because um, even though it's a 20-year lease, the tenant at some point could go bankrupt during the lease. So you're going to get the property back. If the tenant doesn't renew at the end of that 20 years, you're going to want to have something that you can release. So you, for example, let's say that it's a, um, a grocery store and the grocery store that you're buying is 40 to 60,000 square feet. You're more than likely not going to find another tenant to take that full space. So you might have to cut it up. So these are some of the things that you, you have to be aware of. We also mentioned, like I said, we're going to get this in, in greater detail, but you want to make sure that there's the proper zoning. For example, if the tenant has a drive-through, in a lot of cases, you need a special variance for a drive-through, or if a tenant happens to be selling liquor, um, you want to make sure that they're in, in compliance with zoning because in certain places, if you've got a um, school or a church within a, a certain area, you know, that's a prohibited use in that area because they don't want liquor being sold near the school or the church. As we talked about, the tenant estoppel certificate is really, really huge. You want to make sure that you get the full estoppel certificate signed and sent to you. Uh, we asked 10 days prior to closing. There's a lot of places that'll say, no, we don't want to disturb our tenant. So we'll get it to you five days, you know, prior to closing. But you want to get that sooner rather than later, because you want to make sure that the tenant is doing everything per the lease, because what you're reading is the lease. And this just verifies that the tenant and the landlord are doing everything per the lease. And then you're going to want to name the, the closing time. We typically do it 30 days within the waiver of all contingencies. If it's an all cash purchase, it can be you know sooner than that. It really depends on, on how fast you can go through all this stuff. 
and how comfortable you are with doing this. So we do the extended thing, but we have it a, a, an acquisition process where everything is just completely detailed. It's like a machine. So we can close a, a lot faster just because we've got our acquisition process and procedures down. You know, for somebody just doing this in the first time, you might want to go 30 days because it is a lot of uh, stuff, or you might just want to make sure you've got all your homework done before committing to that. And then we typically put in the closing costs will be charged according to the normal customs and practices of the state or the particular municipality. Certain regions, they will prorate things one way. In other regions, they'll prorate things another way. Proration is just the uh, splitting of the costs. So if we're into the year, like in July 1st, all the expenses up to July 1st will be prorated to the seller. And then after July 1st, all the expenses. So that there, if there's an insurance policy that was prepaid, which we probably wouldn't get into here because it's a triple net deal, but let's say there was an insurance policy and it was prepaid for the year, that expense would be credited to the seller and you'd have to pay more to pay for that insurance policy. So that's what the, the prorations do. We also warrant that there's no real estate brokers except for the brokers that either we were dealing with as a buyer, we had a buyer's broker, or if we only dealt with the seller's broker, we put that in there just to make sure because again, if you wanna be in this business for a while, these selling brokers and these buyer's brokers, but the brokers, um, know who's who. If you try to be not cool with a broker, it's just going to come back and bite you and, and you're not really going to get, you know, the, the greatest deals. Or if you're in a bidding war, that particular broker is going to tell his owner, well, this is what these people did to me in the past and they haven't been cool. So I'm not sure that they can have the ability to close now. And then as we talked about before, you're going to have the right to assign the purchase and sale agreement to another entity because what we're doing is we're offering our company, but we're going to set up a single tenant uh, or single asset LLC. And then the big thing, if you are doing a 1031 exchange, so you're going to be, uh, you've already closed on one property, maybe you sold your multifamily building or something like that, you had a cash, you need to make sure that they know that you're doing a 1031 exchange and you need to make sure that the seller is going to agree to cooperate in the purchase with the exchange, uh, including the accommodation. There might be some scheduling issues. So you want them to know about that. So that pretty much uh, takes care of most of the uh, LOI. So That's LOI before you buy, Adam. <laughs> LOI before you fly, before you buy. That's really, I mean, that was really helpful. Thank you, Michael. And for everyone listening, you know, one thing that comes to mind for me is, as far as I know, there's really not many places you can go out there and find access to information like what Michael <laughs> just shared with us. You know, those 30 years of experience, they definitely go a long way. So guys, make sure, as we mentioned, you uh, sign up for a copy of the pre-sale book if you're looking for the text format of what we just went through. And that's nothing but netbook.com. Any, any follow-up on that, Michael? We are trying to add value to people's lives. And I, I can tell you that and I'm going to go Mr. Old Guy again. Uh, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't any of these places where, you know, there wasn't podcasts. 
And so the only way I got experience doing this was doing it, which is the way you should get experience is, is doing it. You know, I, I was completely in the dark and um, I worked for some larger companies that kind of taught me how to go through this stuff. You know, now with, with just the resources out there, but I do notice that people don't go into detail about how to actually do things. They just kind of say, oh, just go out there and do it, you know, blah, 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 make the offer. It's like, well, what's included in the offer? We're just trying to add value. We're just trying to add education because we believe that, you um, this is one of the greatest spaces in the real estate business and, you know, not a lot of people know about it. So we're just excited. And thank you very much, Adam, as always, for um, bringing us through this. Sure. And just want to be clear, we got through everything you wanted to cover today. Was there any other like hot tips or thoughts running through your mind in regards to what we covered? I think that uh, pretty much covers it for now because we are going to go into much more detail with the purchase and sale agreement episode. So for right now, it's the LOI is what it is. It's an overview. It's an agreement to terms. If you agree with the terms and the owner agrees with the terms, then you move forward and um, you slap down your uh, contract, your purchase and sale agreement and uh, the legal fees start too. Cool. You slap it down. I don't know if I'm trying to think of a follow-up joke to that one. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell. I almost feel like you know calling him a co-host isn't even quite fulfilling because of just how much information and knowledge he shared with us today. But joined again by Michael Flight, thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you in the next episode. Thank you once again for joining us here on Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. If you enjoyed what you heard today, one last friendly reminder to like, share, subscribe, or leave a review for us. It really helps a ton with the show's visibility. For the Nothing But Net team, I'm Adam Carswell. Take care. Nothing But Net. The Nothing But Net podcast is not intended to provide legal, tax counsel, or accounting advice. Adam Carswell, Michael Flight, Concordia Realty Corporation, Liberty Real Estate Fund, LLC, and their affiliates do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice, or the worthiness and promotion of any particular investment. This material has been prepared for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors before engaging in any transaction or undertaking. We highly encourage individuals and investors to seek the counsel of a qualified attorney as well as seek the counsel of a tax professional or certified public accountant to determine if there are any potential tax liabilities or consequences as a result of anything contained herein. All listeners of this podcast or video should understand that there are no guarantees of any success, outcome, or profitability of any transaction or undertaking expressed or implied and will not be liable for any financial or other losses or damages incurred as a result of any undertaking. Go to nothingbutnet.us for a complete set of disclosures. Thank you.